Welcome to the Shake, Rattle and Roll podcast. This is episode 16. This has been one of my favourite episodes of date. We chat with Byron Hayward, who's the current Wales defensive rugby coach. We chat about his international career as a player. We chat about his battle with cancer. And we chat about his faith and uh, his views on being a Christian. It's a great listen. I hope you enjoy. Right. Welcome to the Shake, Rattle and Roll podcast. I've got a... A guest today was a, a local legend from where I'm from, up in the old Blind Gwent Valleys. Um, former Welsh international rugby player, former amateur Welsh boxer, and current coach of the, of the Welsh rugby team, the one and only Byron Hayward. Thanks for joining me today, Byron. How are you doing, Bert? Yeah, I'm good, Jake. Thank you. All right, Bert. Um, long time no see, buddy. Obviously, very busy at the moment. Um, loads of questions I've had in today uh, for you off, off Facebook, off Twitter. A C- couple of. Uh, Couple of serious questions and a couple off your old rugby and boxing mates, which are which are not so serious. But I'm looking forward to doing this one. What I always use these for, by I'll just pretty much have a a chat to you about the background as a you know the young Byron Hayward, how you got involved in boxing and rugby, and you know just a stage by stage progress as to where you are now in your career. All right. So yeah. how are you coping with the with the lockdown at the moment? Oh, up and down like most, I think. Yeah, uh, alone since. Uh, End of March and um, yeah, it's just a boredom, I guess, isn't it? Most people struggle with. Yeah, is, is there any sign of the you guys as a Welsh setup being able to get back and, and do some coaching and do some training yet? Have you had any discussions over that? Uh, yeah, we we had some chats regarding you know just going out and watching the Pro 14 games as soon as they start back up, which hopefully will be um, sort of around the middle to end of August. Yeah, and it'd be nice to get up in the regions again and see the boys, watch a bit of training and. Obviously, view those games and hopefully get something up and running around sort of October, end of October, early November time. Well, the Premier League football have started back up this week, haven't they? So, is there any sign of the regional scene in Wales um, starting to play play rugby again? Yeah, there's been some um, talks around sort of the uh, middle to end of August about some uh, derby games, obviously just within Wales. So that's been um, put in place, really, and other boys will be starting back to training soon. So there's obviously so much change now with the different protocols, yeah. with you know testing and making sure everyone's as safe as possible, and uh, making sure this disease don't spread any further. With with, um, with the regional sides as well, I was talking to to, to Ross Moriarty about this. You know, the, the, fortunately for the high level with the television, there is money there for you guys just to put the right processes in place with the testing, and you know, for me as a as a coach in a different sport, but you know we we are going through the same things as you. Where it's like I'm your right arm cut off because we can't do what we want to do every day. Surely the sensible approach would be if you've got a a pool of players that are all happy to be tested on a weekly basis. Let's get them done. If they're fit and healthy, let's get them back to doing what they do best as well. I mean, what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, definitely. That's, yeah, I'm sure you wouldn't talk to any player or coach or anyone involved in sport. It's just like we realize how much we miss it. That's one yeah. thing this, this situation has put us in. Like we may realize how much we love the sport, whether we participate in it or you're a supporter. Yeah. It's uh, been a massive part of your life, and all of a sudden, it's taken away from you. If you, you look at us in Six Nations, we we were in the veil for eight weeks, so we had a lockdown there, really. Yeah, yeah, but of course. Yeah. We were in a lockdown where it's so intense and flat out busy, and then straight into a lockdown then in March, where you go from being incredibly um, busy and Full on into your sport, into absolutely nothing at all. So yeah. um, 
we yeah we, we can't wait for it and i agree with what you're saying yeah you know the things are in place will be put in place but medical team do an unbelievable amount of work on it yeah and making sure all the protocols are passed and everything is safe and legal um for from a boys you know um these disease spreading because the last yeah. thing you want then is obviously do I want to tour in your camp and then uh, it'll go through the wine for course, yeah. so. that's where the regular testing hopefully you know should it should minimize it and it should be personal choice like if um if you've got a player and I know full well the sport wouldn't hold it again if they say well no I don't want to take that chance you know that's their decision but it should be personal choice and if you've got a group of lads that are happy to be tested happy to go back into the training the training scheme of things and, you know, start contact and all the rest of it with their teammates. I, I don't see any issue with that. They fit young, healthy men. The, you know, the survival rate on the disease is in line with any other normal illness around the place, you know. So that, that's just my take on it, you know. Just what you said there, you know, where you said about you going to lockdown at the Vale with the, the players. So for, for the Six Nations, um, you, you, you all as a, as, a, as a unit then, you meet up at the Vale and you stay there for eight weeks? Yeah, well, that was a... A big eye opener for me, really. You know, you think um, it's only down the road, forty minutes away for me, but you just want to be in New Zealand, really, because you yeah. get like one day a week, and the rest of the time you are you're in the camp, and it's basically twenty four seven. So you stay in in the hotel as well, then, yeah. Yeah, yeah everything. Well, that's 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 pretty intense, by I, I I'd imagine. Yeah, it is biggest eye opener for me going from regional rugby, which obviously date the day and the proceed the season is very long, um, but you have an eight week window where it is constantly eight weeks and it's 24-7 for those eight weeks how, how do the players cope with that I, I'd imagine as coaches you're giving a few a bollocking over the over the eight weeks you're trying to keep them in check uh, I, I think uh, from a playing point of view they are always really active and busy the amount of sessions they do now and obviously they got pre-ab then you got sessions they got rehab after sessions then they got physio-medical so the days you know surprisingly is not like, a lot of, you don't yeah. get any of downtime it is actually a lot of work time. I'm um, ready for bed at the end of it. Yeah, you're shattered at the end of it, yeah. so you just can't wait to get to bed, really, and get up and start again. Right. Right. I want to talk about, about about you as an individual. Like, obviously, um, you know, we, we've known each other for, for decades. You know what I mean? You've been somebody that I've looked up to as a sportsman, as a young lad growing up. You know, he was successful in your boxing, very successful in rugby, one of the more high-profile play, players in the area. How did you start? You know, when did you start playing rugby? By how old was you, and where was it to? Uh, I was seven years old, and uh, played for Nandy Glow when rugby. Yeah. My father got me into it. I think he uh, actually wanted me to play more than I actually wanted to play myself. <laughs> you, your dad played himself as well, by? No, no, he oh, just right, a rugby fan, yeah. Played in school, I think. But I always loved rugby and always supported Albert Lady. Watched Albert Lady for years, um, and uh, we we play around. You know, our local area where our kids not like so much at the other day, you know, there was not a lot of PlayStation games, etc. Yeah, yeah. So we were always out, we were playing football, rugby, cricket, whatever. And uh, yeah, I always remember playing, always hanging around the kids who were a few, couple of years older than me. And uh, I just loved tackling. I, I always yeah. liked tackling the big kids, and so they'd always be saying to the old man, oh, I get into rugby. So uh, yeah, my first. Um, Team I played for, I think it was Nanty Glow under eight, so I was seven, and my coaches was Dennis Wright and Terry Mags. And uh, it, just like, you think all those years back, then people have massive influence on your life. Yeah, yeah. Just yeah. really, really, and they were really good players themselves at the time. Yeah. Playing for Blinder, who well, Blinder at that time were a great side. 
and they were excellent players and they took their time out to go and coach kids on a on a Sunday morning and obviously their boys were playing, Steve Maggs was playing, yeah. uh, Darren Wright and they were good players. But um yeah, the influence those people have on your lives later on is is yeah, it's immeasurable really because they don't just teach you how to play rugby, they also teach you how to be a good person as well. And they were they were great and have fun, which was yeah. the most important part, I think, for for kids taking part in any sport is to remember to have fun. And we always have great fun there. If if you don't enjoy it, I, I, I come across this on a on a weekly basis where um I have parents dropping their kids off for a jujitsu class and eight out of ten will love it. They'll come in, they'll enjoy the process, they can't wait to come back to the next but one or two, and you know, any sport is not for everybody. Some some will enjoy rugby, some will hate it. Some will enjoy football, some will hate it. Some will enjoy combat sports, some will hate it. But there's nothing worse than seeing that kid who's there and you know full well they don't want to be here, you know, because as you've just said, it's not enjoyable. The more enjoyable a practice is, the more the kids will learn and the more they'll want to do it as a living, you know. So we, we involve a lot of like games and add on with us as well, particularly for the younger the younger kids, just so that there's a there's a bit of technique, a bit of bit of sparring, but also a bit of fun, you know, where, where they enjoy it. Also, as well, the, going back to mini rugby, what you said, like I remember playing mini mini. I think every kid in the valley's played mini rugby at some stage, didn't they? Like I, I remember, um, you you remember him, old Ian Griffiths Mole, who's passed away now, sadly. Um, me and him played. Uh, I played prop for Abbott the Lady, believe it or not, and he was playing prop for Nanty Glow, and we played in a mini rugby. And it, it was it was rugby then, you know. There was tackling. Now is a lot more. There's tag rugby. There's limitations on the, uh, and and I understand the the concept of that. But I do think sometimes we wrap our kids up in cotton wool a little bit too much. And um, you know, I remember having my nose smashed over my face playing rugby. I remember breaking my arm, falling off a tree swing. I remember breaking my ankle, jumping off a bloody tree. But all these things build us as characters in life. And I think, as you said, now there's too much of the Xbox and the PlayStation. Um, ethos where they're quite happy to have no social skills and sit in their bedroom and, and, and fiddle on a computer all day. For me, I like the hands-on approach, as you said, and that team camaraderie, being part of a team, I think is so important for developing a, 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 an individual, whether it be man or woman. Yeah, I agree 100% what you're saying. I was going to talk about it uh, with a wife the other day about um, just like if you use that, we talk about just life in general, but if you look about why most people don't do things in their life and go on to achieve their dreams, we all have dreams when we're kids. It's because of fear. Yeah. As well, the fear of failure, fear of hard work, fear of getting injured, fear what fear of what people say, criticism. But when you're a kid, you think back to what playing mini rugby then. It was you go and get stuck in, like get bumped about, fall off, fall under a tree or whatever. Yeah. Oh, you you break a break your arm, it'll fix, it'll mend. Yeah. Just, rub yeah. it, in. rub it in. That's what they used to say on hand. Rub it in. That's <laughs> it. Yeah. And it does develop your character, but it also develops because you. You think about a kid um, when they're young, they don't have fear. That uh, My granddaughter's coming down later now, and it'll be a whirlwind year, but we put fear in our kids. It's like, yeah. get off our wall. Don't stand on that. You fall off and hurt yourself. Well, no, yeah. let them stand on it. You fall off and hurt yourself. We don't matter. Yeah. So yeah. Obviously, without jumping off the top of the roof. Of course, there's limitations, but no, I agree what you're saying. Yeah. It, you... But don't they, don't, um, sometimes we train our kids to be fearful and the tag rugby and things like that, you know, it's okay to start off with, I suppose, if you're five or six, but, yeah, you know, didn't have to get bumped about it. I'd like to see the stats now as well on how many are playing mini rugby now, because they're still quite strong in our area in particular. But I'll, I'll guarantee that 
it's not the same as when when me and you were youngsters. And I guarantee the follow-on of some of these kids going on to play at senior level, even at a, at an amateur level, it probably drops off a little bit now again because I, I just think that you know I see I work in a school and I just see the difference in um in social skills. Like I'll drive into school on a Monday morning and I'll drive past fifty kids all sat together all doing this, not a conversation going on between one of the fifty, all on their phones. Mess, you know, messaging somebody in the next bloody room. You know, I just think the world has changed so dramatically, and I don't think it's for, it's for the better when it comes to developing youngsters, particularly in sport. You know, that's just my 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 take on it. Yeah, you're what, right. Um, so you played you played many rugby for the for the Nanty Glow team. Obviously, when when young men become quite serious, it's, it's around about the youth level, isn't it? Under 15s, under 16s. So who was you playing for at that time? By was you still at, at the Nanty Glow? Seen already moved on by then, don't that lady? Uh, yeah, well, I was at school rugby then, so I think we yeah. finished about 14s and then uh, playing school rugby. And I don't know whether you go through stages as a teenager, hormonal changes, and and uh, I, I wasn't very good at all. Like a couple of years, I was rubbish. My father used to let me know that quite often as well. <laughs> you can imagine knowing your dad, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And those were the words, you're rubbish. <laughs> uh, and then I got to 16 and um. I joined up with youth, and everything seemed to change from there. I started dedicating my life to it more, uh, training a lot harder, and um, I had an unbelievable coach, Brian Davis, who still lives in Adelaide now. That's um, Paul, Paul and Reese's. Really so, uh, is, is, is it dad or uncle? Yeah, Reese is his father. Yeah, yeah. So, so Brian um, was a coach here, and oh, that guy was about 30 years ahead of his time. Unbelievable influence on my career, biggest influence actually. Yeah, throughout wherever wherever I've been. That's a that's a big accolade when you think of some of the the people you've been around mine over the last 20, 30 years. Yeah, and, and in terms of influence, you had the biggest influence out of everyone. Yeah. I think he allowed you to be yourself. Um, didn't criticize you when you made mistakes, and just give you a free license to go on and get that word again enjoyment. Yeah. And um, the three years I was there, we, we had good teams. Every, we were successful every year. You know, we won uh, Northmore Cups and Gwent Cups, got the finals of the Welsh Cup. And we were really successful for the three years. And I really believe that that was a lot of it was down to him. Yeah, that, that shaped you on, on, on what you wanted as a career then, I'm guessing, as well, yeah? Massively. You know, you couldn't wait to go training on a Tuesday and Thursday just to yeah. be with the boys, work yeah. hard, have a bit of fun. And we'd have a, certainly have a bit of fun after a game on the Saturday. In the, yeah, the, I remember those days. <laughs> rugby club, you know, and lifelong memories and, um, yeah, made friends of life as well during those times. Did you, um, do you have any international honours at youth level? Yeah, so I was fortunate enough, I think I was 17, and I went on a, the under-19 tour to Canada when I was 17, and that was the first time I'd ever had any international honours. Um, yeah, first time I'd ever been on a plane in my life. We, uh, you know, we we weren't very uh, prosperous. You know, yeah. my father worked in the mines, and my mother was a cleaner in the pub, so I yeah. never went holidays to Weymouth, things like that. But yeah, yeah. so I went to Canada for three weeks, which seemed like three years. I was only a week. I can't wait to come home. I was homesick. But homesick. Yeah, yeah, typical Valley boy. But, but, but what uh, an experience for a seventeen-year-old kid from the valleys. As you said, first time to get on a plane is to go and represent your country in another, you know, on a foreign ground. So did did you play against Canada on that tour? No, I didn't get capped on our tour. I played a couple of provincial games, but I didn't get capped. So the boys who were a couple of years ahead of me there, who 
were like Di Young was a captain. Yeah. Webster, Tony Clement. And it was only like I remember the following summer after that that Richard Webster got capped for Wales in the eighty seven World Cup. Right. How old were you mean then? Nineteen twenty. Yeah, yeah, twenty. Yeah. He was twenty years old and uh, and Di Young was involved and, and Andy Clement. Within a couple of years they were playing for Wales senior team. And um, yeah, you pinch yourself then, you think, Oh, I was actually playing in the same yeah, team. Yeah. yeah. A couple of years younger, you know. But then I played eighteens, nineteens, twenties, and twenty ones the age grade stuff. And you and you had your capsule every at, at each age of them? Yeah, yeah, fortunately. So, so your your first your first adult club then after youth was was Abadal Lady? That's right. And yeah. I guess so obviously just for those watching us a bit younger than you, there was no professional setup back in them days either way, was it? So how did that work? Were you working at the time as well while playing rugby? Yeah, so what they had then, they called it the old merit table. So yeah. basically the best teams in Wales were in the table in this one league. And um, they, had, they used to call it first class and second class. Well, I play with a first class team and we were a very good side. And a lot of top quality players from uh, yeah. maybe then. But yeah, I was working uh, on the building site with the gate construction. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, a couple of people there pulled some strings and actually managed to get me a job labouring here for a couple of years and uh, I loved it, great. And I think, you look at all the training we do now, it's all manual, functional work, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Digging holes all day, that's and we can't get much more functional than manual. Functional that. And again, a lot of people talk about the old days, you know, but some of the some of the real great rugby players from our area were miners as well, underground, on a shovel and a, a pit all day, you know, and some big, tough, strong men were, were created in that era as well. After that, lady, but you went to Ebervale and you had lots of success there, um, alongside one of your mates, Kingsley, as well, weren't they? You know, what, what's your fondest memories there at Ebervale? Was that when you transitioned there? Did you did you have an opportunity of going full time then, by, or was you still working? No, well, uh, there was a couple of actually. I went to Newport for that lady. It didn't last there long, and then I went to play for Newbridge um, before I got to Ebervale. So this was yeah. in the nineties, this was. Uh, a real good couple of years in Newbridge, enjoyed it there. Great bunch yeah. of boys again, like you said. Good Valley spirit, good side. Um, but then the game went sort of professional around 95, 96 area. Yeah. Well, before that, I was plasterer when I become a plasterer and I was doing my trade as a plasterer. So I'd actually given up the rugby because I'd gone into the boxing, like sort of more full time. And then I was going to turn professional with Enzo in Newbridge and um, I'd come out of sort of retirement because I would give up the rugby because I wanted to get my weight down to box. Yeah. Um, Newport asked me would I come up and play a game for them and there was no money in the end days. It was sort of backhanders. I think it was like 25 quid. A couple of beer tokens. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And uh, I was living with my wife who I'm with now and um, we just got together and I was skint. So I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have a game of rugby and right in the very last couple of minutes we played against cross keys. I got tackled and I was in a ruck and I broke my neck. So, what was that? You broke your neck. Yes, yeah, I broke the vertebrae in my neck. Yeah. So I was out of action for ages. So that really, and I'd had all the tests, the medicals, everything to turn professional boxing. At boxing, I only had to have a brain scan the following week, and that was it. I was because um, Joe was with Mickey Duff at that time, and Enzo had managed to get me in with him. Who was you know, Mickey Duff was one of the top promoters. He's like, yeah, you know, sort of Frank yeah, Wilder yeah, yeah. and Ed Yearn, you know. So. uh yeah, that just for a kibosh on that, really, because I was in hospital for such a while. And then by the time I recovered from it, when I came out and got fit again, rugby had turned professional during that time. Yeah. Life turns out, doesn't it? Go yeah, one yeah. way. 
So then, um, yeah, the opportunity came then in Abbeville to go and play rugby for them uh, with a professional contract. And uh, it, it was weird like, because it was like, oh, you go to work every day, you tra- you know, you graft hard, then you go home and you train in the nights. Well, somebody now was actually paying me to go to the gym. Yeah. And I was pinching myself, I couldn't believe it. Like, yeah. we used to train in flex in Blainer, all the Abbeville boys. And, um, you know, a good mate of mine, Craig Bellis, as you know, he, he had a gym there then, and we'd be in there training a day, and so your day's done then, but like four o'clock, I said. Yeah. And everything you need to do, and you got all this time in your hands. But, um, yeah, the fact that somebody was actually paying me to train took a lot of getting used to, really. I, I bet, uh, what, but that must have been, how old was you then, by when you turned, when you signed your first pro contract? Uh, 26. You know, and it, was you married then as well? Uh, no, I wasn't married. I was with Tanya, and you know, with, we with Tanya, yeah. quite quite a nice, um, a nice change in circumstances for you though, because it, I say this to everybody as a sports person: there's only like it's less than one percent of people actually live their dream and get paid for doing something that they love, you know. And um, for, for you and the lads at that time, that um, change over from the, you know the old amateur rugby scene to the pro, uh, what a breath of fresh air! And rightly so, you know, when the, the elite sportsman in every other sport in the country were getting paid. A wage for being the best at what they do, and you know, you, you look at the Welsh internationals that just before that time with you playing in front of 80,000 people, uh, and as you said, getting some beer tokens and a bit of a couple of quid in their back pockets, so re- revolutionary, really. Um, what, what success did you have at Everville? Did you win anything when it was at Everville? Yeah, uh, well, we got to uh, the final of the, the Swirly Cup, which was a big thing then, yeah. Um, we finished. Like amazingly, when you think back at this, the achievement in that we finished in the top four, so we matched, we actually qualified for Europe. So we were playing the European Cup with yeah. Toulouse, uh, Edinburgh, Ulster. That was our group, and they are massive provinces that they were at the time. And Ebbeville, a little tiny club village here, yeah, out play, and we went out with Toulouse and played them in a the group game, and we lost 108 16. And we played them a month later at home and beat them. Incredible, because and probably as well. You know, take, when I t- when I talk a lot, like I got I got a sign in my um in my gym, and it says "Comfort zones are where dreams go to die." And can you imagine Toulouse driving through this valley, heading into that ground, right after all the the glitz and glamour that they've probably enjoyed for years, and thinking, you know, we're a bunch of hillbillies, yeah, we 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 ended up, and it must have took them completely out of their comfort zone. The changing rooms, I guess, are not even on the same spec as. As what they had over there, the crowd, the setup, you know, I, I, I went to a few Everville games when he was playing and the atmosphere was 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 highly charged but at times, you know what I mean, when he was playing certain teams. But um, it just shows as well, you know, like you said, lose under an 8-12 was it out there and then come and beat them. In a, how did that feel, beating a team like that, you know, as a, as a Valley boy doing what he, he loves doing? Yeah, pretty incredible after what happened, you know, a couple of weeks earlier. Yeah. Actually, as you know what it's like in sport, if you've had a beating of some kind, it'll, it'll usually take you a good while to get over it. But yeah. confidence is gone, and but it was like you know they, they had a couple of players less. But if you look at their squad, full of French internationals, and it was exactly that. We just took them by surprise. They obviously were very complacent, as you would be beating someone by. Yes, you would, yeah, yeah. And um, and we just made it a mess like we did. But most teams that came here, there was a lot of scrapping in the game. It wasn't like it is now, and yeah. There was fights going on all over the place, and uh, <laughs> we didn't play that much rugby really. We would have come off second best again, so but we, we got the result. Uh, yeah, it was amazing. I don't think they came in the club after they was straight on a bus and left. I bet they couldn't wait to get back to the airport. 
I, I was looking at, I was looking earlier at um, the clubs you've played for. I got a list there. You've played ever you know at an high level, Evervale, um Lanethy. Was Lanethy Lanethy or the Scarlets at the time? Yeah, Lanethy at the time. It's still Lanethy. Lost uh, Sale Sharks and, and then you came back and finished your career back in Wales with Pontypool. Is that right? Yeah? That's right, yeah. So was Ebervale your favourite period as a player or, or were there a you know, did you enjoy the the moving to England and trying something different? Yeah, they all did different um, pros, I guess, in a way. But I think Ebervale, in terms of, yeah, it'll be a special place for me because I'm a Blaine Gwent boy. Yeah. I just think that the spirit we had in that team there was so many local boys. Yeah, that, and I think that was the key, wasn't it, to your success as well? A lot of local lads playing for that setup at the time. Yeah, definitely, and uh, yeah, the fact that we weren't just playing for a team, we were a bunch, we were mates as well, and yeah. we each other banter. And if we weren't involved in rugby, we'd be growing for a pint together. Yeah, uh, but also you, we all achieved so much from there as well as a result of being a strong team individually. Then most a lot of the boys got capped from Everville. Did, um, did so you win your caps when you was at Everville? Yeah, 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 I was at Everville, yeah, at the time, and then I always I went on tour of Wales the following year, but it was. The year um, ninety nine, I was in Clenethy then. I was playing for the Clenethy Scarlets um, in ninety nine, and then went to Argentina on tour of Wales that year. So, who was your your first cap against? Uh, well, I'm, well, I was on the bench a few times in the nineteen ninety eight Six Nations. So I played for a couple of years to the A side because they had the A side running then. Yeah, and. Um, it seems like you, you feel like you sometimes it's just ain't going to happen because you play for the A team so much and then you yeah, train so against the first yeah, team. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and then you know, you, you know it's just subjective, isn't it? Selection. Yeah. You know, so you, everyone says who's your best coach you've ever had, and it's usually the one that picks you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, I, I, uh, I, on that, what you said about who's the best coach, and I, I'm like a repetitive record. I've said this in every interview I've done on these podcasts. My take is this. There's no such thing as the best coach in the world. There's a best coach for you as an individual. Because I might be a great rugby player playing for you now, but if our personalities are locking ones and we don't get on, that's going to have an impact on you selecting me. I don't care what anybody says. Your attitude towards your team, all these different where you might find a different environment where you'll excel and a different coach who, who knows how to switch your buttons and get you to play. So, as you said, who's the best coach is the one that's picked to. But that's based on relationships and their trust in you as well, I believe. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Just going back to that, yeah, you just think it's not... I think I played about 16 times the A-side. And we won a Grand Slam as well in 99. And, um, yeah, just going back to that. So I got on the bench then, got picked for the first team. I bench five nations and uh, on the bench in Ireland and against France. You wouldn't like it is now. You put everyone on. Yeah, but I didn't get on for <laughs> the <laughs> South Africa tour was coming up then, uh, the following you know summer in the June, and unfortunately Kevin Barron was the worst coach at that time. Got sacked when we just got smashed against France in Wembley, and um, they just brought in two interim coaches, which was Dennis John and Lynn Owls, just for the tour, and it was crazy how we went there really when you think about it, because. We had like 10 days training. We were going to play the best team in the world at that time. They yeah. were the number one team in the world. We had 10 days training before we left. And the squad that went to South Africa to start, it didn't hardly resemble the squad that I was with in the Six Nations a couple of months earlier. Because yeah. so many players had dropped out. And I think it was because the Lions tour was the year before. And usually the boys had so much fatigue and pick up injuries that there were so many players dropped out of that tour. So we went over there and we got... Well, we went to Zimbabwe first. 
to play a game, and that's where I got on my first cap. And then we played South Africa at the end of a. You play in teams like Natal Sharks and yeah, you know, yeah, sides who are like international teams. Well, yeah, they could only own it any international, couldn't they? Them, them yeah. regional sides over there. You know, people look at that um, game where we lost to South Africa ninety six thirty, and it's like it's not really a true reflection of Wales versus South Africa. Yeah. By the time oh, loads of boys got injured then on the tour, they were flying players up left, right, and centre. And that wasn't a, I don't know, it was a Welsh team really. Ooh, yeah. but, you know, we were Welsh as in, we were Welsh people, but there was no one near the team that played in the So fight. many, So many key players missing out of it. Yeah, and you're playing the best team in the world at the top of their game. You did, know. Didn't, do you remember, remember Kingsley, did Kingsley captain Wales, had he? He did, yes. He believed yeah. when he was on initially, he came out, he got called out. Because so I think Rob Atliard got injured. Yeah. So he came out and he captained that game, yeah. So that was your two caps then, was on that tour. Um, did you make any of the squads after that then, by or, or? Yeah, well, Graham Henry came on the end the following, uh, after that tour. The coach was involved in a lot of trials and things. And the following year, went to Argentina on that squad. Yeah. Um, I didn't get, I didn't win in the test team. Um, but the boys won 2 2 0 the test series. It was a good tour, really good tour. Um, good and a real good, strong squad, weren't they? I'm sure if that squad who went to South Africa 12 months earlier, it'd have been a different result. Yeah, well, maybe the result not so much, but it definitely would have been a different scoreline. Yeah, but, um, yeah, I had to, uh, the, that tour with uh, in Argentina, and then a couple of months later coming back, I had an opportunity to move to Gloucester. And I always wanted to play in the Premiership because I'd had a lot of offers in the years leading up to it. And I thought I was 29, coming on 30, and if I don't do it now, it'll never happen. So I took the opportunity to go and play in Gloucester. Was the ruling then that if you play for an English club, you couldn't play for your country? I think it was because Kevin Bowen had actually, are you sure Kevin Bowen? He would, Kevin Bowen had the laws. If you played in England, you could play for Wales. Yeah. Didn't matter. But then I, I think when Graham came in, he was trying to change it, obviously to make Wales, Welsh rugby stronger, to get all the Welsh boys playing in Wales. Yeah. So if you were outside of Wales at that time, it, uh, it certainly wasn't favourable upon you but it wasn't legally no legal. but uh, now the politics in the game do you think that, that that may be affected on your chances of getting another cap I don't know maybe no. they were just better players than me playing for Wales probably that's what it was you 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 were you were probably unfortunate that it was in an era where some of the great outside halves in Welsh history were playing as well you know you had Jenkins there and um you, you know that I think probably one of the most competitive positions in the team is that fair to say by yeah, Welsh number 10 for Wales has always been difficult. Yeah. You know? uh, every kid, I think, growing up in Wales wants to be a number 10 for Wales, doesn't he? But yeah, Jenks would have been the, the main rival I had at that time. Yeah. And if you look at Jenks, what he did in the game and how yeah. prolific he was, you know, particularly with kicking, he just never missed, didn't he? And oh, unbelievable. The test rugby, you need someone who's going to guarantee you points. And that's certainly what Jenks did. Um, and, and understandably why he had so many caps as he did. Yeah. One of the questions I had come in, uh, I usually do the question, but because we're talking on our subject, somebody said that at, at the time you were very vocal about um, the the opportunity of players whose great-grandmother was married to a Welsh minor and they had an opportunity of playing for Wales. What's your take on that now, this eligibility? Do you, do you feel that um, it is a loophole that should be used or should we be given more of the homegrown talent uh, more of an opportunity to be playing? I think... If you look at our nation and how small our nation is, that we have to do what everyone else in the world is doing. 
because otherwise we're just poking ourselves in the eye. Yeah. You know, you don't, you hurt yourself and you're where, you know, it's a lot different to what it was back then. You have, you know, residency laws and rules now that if you're in the country four years, it was three, now it's four to five years, is that you become qualified for that country. And I think if you look at Australia, New Zealand's a prime example. How many South Sea Island boys have played for New Zealand in the past? You know, if you look at Jonah, was was Tongan. Yeah, yeah. You know, by heritage and birth. So if we don't do it, then we just do it in ourselves when every other nation is doing it, Australians, all the top nations, and just makes it even playing field, I think. Would you prefer it that it's a case of they disband our rule worldwide so nobody can touch into it? Or do you think that, or are you comfortable with the, the setup we got at the moment? I'm comfortable with it now because it is what it is, and I've worked yeah. there for a long time. Um, but, yeah, personally, I always believed that if you're Welsh, you play for Wales. If you're England, yeah. you play for England, and that's it. That's the way I, I grew up, and at the time, all you know, at that time, certainly, it, w- it was more along my thoughts. But um, the way it is now, the rules are the rules, and as long as you play, you know, you operate within them. Yeah. Everyone's on an even playing field, and nobody can complain, really. Yeah, that's fake comment. But what about um, you as an individual? What's the most memorable game you've played in? That's a tough one. Tough one, particularly with the amount of games you've played. And but if you if you had to select one, what what would it be, and what would the reasons be for? As a player, not as a coach, as a player. As a player. Uh, well, probably for selfish reasons, performance-wise, we probably when we played against um, Natal Sharks for Wales, at Kings Park. I played fullback, really, even though not too well. I played quite a bit of fullback, uh, which wouldn't really be my position, but yeah. um, we're just so desperate to get on the pitch. Got a little red jersey on for the A team and on the bench, and then when you actually get on there, yeah. like I've been filled with so much adrenaline, I'd have played anyway. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, playing that game against the Tal Sharks, I really enjoyed that game. We lost something like 28-26. It was really close. And I managed to score a try. I think Arwell put me through a gap. And... Um, and score a try and um, go man a match at a watch off Sky Sports. Watch <laughs> off the game. We still got it or we sold it on eBay? <laughs> yeah, I still got it. It doesn't work well. <laughs> yeah, uh, so for performance point of view, and that, you know, Kingsley was one of my best mates, grew up in the same street as him all my life. He had just come out with the tour. Yeah. That was the first time we played for Wales together. I live on the top row of East Bend, doing on the street, They're five doors from each other. Uh, so that was another massive reason as well for it. And it was, especially looking back now. Yeah, it's, it's a, that, that's a fantastic for me experience to do it with somebody you've grown up with who's a, your, your best friend and the two of you. To, yeah, brilliant, brilliant experience for the pair of The teams in the yards in school, you know, every weekend. And yeah. We usually want to be on opposite teams because we'd always have a bit of banter and always want to get stuck into each other. Massive competition between us right throughout our lives and then you actually it is it's surreal to think that you are now in the same schoolyard playing rugby all your lives and football is that you're going to put that jersey on and be on the pitch together well, and, and what an achievement for two valley boys from such a small community as well you know it's unheard of isn't it as well we, because 
you know, I'm always happy, you know, and I do believe, and, I, and this is not me because I've come from here, I've, I've lived here all my life and I'll never move out, but I do believe that in a sporting context, we don't get the opportunities, we don't get the funding, we don't get the, the financial backing in any sport that you get elsewhere um, within the UK, you know. Um, I always say up and on when I when I get it in, I say we're the forgotten nation when it comes to MMA because we're an unfashionable area and we don't get the investment sometimes. So for two of you to come through, as you said, from playing on the you know the mini rugby scene to the, the schoolyard for your club and, and, and to play for Wales, what, what an achievement and what a feeling for you both. Yeah, it was amazing. Who is the best player you've ever played against, by? Do you share the feel when you, you know, for you, he's the best player you've ever, who's ever been an opposite to you? I played against, yeah, obviously, a lot, loads of good times, you know, Jenks, Stephen, um, Johnny Wilkinson, Carlos Spencer, unbelievable times. But for me, the best rugby player I ever played against, all round, for me, was Austin Ely. Yeah? Yeah, because when we, I remember playing for Gloucester, and it don't matter where you played, he used to play nine, ten. He play on the wing, and unbelievable talent. Like to do it at that level, he's different doing it in a couple of you know Mickey Mouse games or whatever. But he used to do it at that level. He also done it for England. He he did he, he did it for the British Lions as well. Then he played a couple of positions for the Lions as well on tour. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I just think from an all round skill set, um, execution at the highest level. Yeah, he was an incredible player. That, that's probably going to shock a lot of people, that, but uh, you, you know, after you breaking it down the way you have, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, Austin. and he, longevity as well. He was at the top level for a long, long time as well, wasn't he? Oh yeah, and you look at the game, physical game. No, not a massive man. Not a big fella either. Yeah, yeah. And you really that injured out of action that often, consistent week in, week out. Because the other guys I mentioned there, and so many great players in their own rights as, as the number tens. Yeah. Um, and many other players in their positions, but to do it, to have that diverse skill set, to do that across the, the potentially the old backline, really. Yeah. With that level, incredible player. So Austin, who's who's the best player you ever played with? Now I'm putting him on a spot tonight because you're gonna have a few phone calls after this and saying <laughs> you cheeky get. What about me? And you can't say Kingsley. Played <laughs> with. Uh... I remember, it's like, it's like play for, playing for Gloucester and someone who'd had a real massive impact and made my eyes sort of go, wow, this is, this guy is so unbelievable, like, made such a difference to our team. I don't know, like, the, the older people remember a guy called Jason Little, who was an Australian centre, and he came over and played for us. And... Like he was unbelievable that he played outside me, obviously being a centre. And just his communication and his talk made my life so much easier to play Yeah. as a 10, because he was just telling me every picture, he could see everything, he was just telling me what to do, really. I just listened to him and more often than not, made the right decision. Um, but the difference he made to us as a team as well, he just makes something out of nothing. And there's very little space, you know, on the field, in, in that area of the field anyway, 10, 12, yeah. 13 channel. But you make breaks up with nothing, pass it. You always seem to do everything perfectly well. Pass at the right time, decision-making, spot on. And just think about the all-round player. And he made such a massive difference to us at, at an high level as well. So from an impact point of view, 
he, he would definitely probably be one I would I would definitely mention. What, what nationality was he again by? Australian. Australian. Yeah, and then you had Ian Jones, who was a full, he played 80 caps of the All Blacks, was in yeah. Gloucester as well. He joined the same week I joined, actually. Um, he was another incredible player because he was like 6'6", like a beanpole, only bench press about 90k. Yeah. <laughs> but physical, as you, you know, those of weights don't, don't mean everything because he was so physical, never on the injury bed. Yeah, why you reach strength. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. Uh, a mentally strong, so mentally tough that uh, never got injured, would never allow himself not to miss a training session. And, uh, you know, he's such a good example and another one who had a massive influence on our team. Uh, two good names. And, and again, two good names outside of the box that people would probably wouldn't refer to. You you mentioned Brian earlier was such a big influence only when you're youth days, but who's the best coach you've played under professionally? Uh, professionally? <laughs> How long have we got? <laughs> as long as you want. Uh, I think that um, if you think about when that transition of rugby going from the amateur game to professional game, I think players are adapting and evolving. But I think more so the, the same coaches as well. Yeah, so yeah. They're going through a transition of going to work, giving up their jobs, and now becoming a full-time coach. Full-time coach, yeah. Yeah, and I think... Um, you know, Lee Jones was a really good coach in Everwell for us because he was, I think Lee was working in um, his electrician in a place in Ask. And, he, and now he's actually a professor of psychology. Yeah. He, he's gone on to upskill himself. Yeah. How much and that change and transition in his life, he embraced it. And um, so Lee, Lee was a really good coach, I think, for his time. Um, he was locked into the psychological side of things individually, as you spoke about earlier. Well, yeah, um, yeah. relationship with coaches. He did used to uh, do my head in sometimes on a Sunday morning, ringing me up. I'd be lying in bed about half nine, and maybe nursing an hangover, and uh, Lee'd be ringing me up. How do you think you went yesterday, Matt? <laughs> uh, yeah, I haven't come from yet. Let me let me have a think about it. I'll get back to you. But uh, <laughs> so Lee, uh, and again another local boy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a little boy, but yeah, Lee definitely a massive help on my career. Massive, massive help. And I think he generally cared, which I what I think is so important about coaches now is that he generally cared about people individually. Yeah. Even though he wouldn't show it, Lee, he was never found it hard to give compliments, but he always did his best for you to help yeah, you yeah. be the best you can be, and that's what being a coach is about. Can't ask for no more from a coach, can you? Yeah. That's what, right. what, so Lee Jones, yeah, is is the one you would choose from. Yeah, I would. What, um, you know, when he was playing, did you always have an aspiration of becoming a coach yourself? Or was that just something that, that, that set, so, so seemed to naturally happen at the end of your career? Because you was player coach at a few places, weren't you? Yeah, I think it happened like that. And I think when you're a 10, now, look, there are our 10s now with us. And I think as you come into them latter stages of your career, you're, you're like more of a coach anyway, because you tend to run the team and yeah. run all the shots and the move. You get a better understanding of the tactical game, the tactical side of things, um, conditions, whatever opposition you play against, and you tend to take more of a lead role during the weeks. Yeah. So it was a bit of an evolution of going from a, a player. I just feel like I was going that way anyway, and I was enjoying it. Yeah. The hardest bit was like a couple of years being a player coach at 
point Bourne ever veil last going off. That's very difficult because it's too much of a conflict. Yeah, trying to justify your position in the team with the others and yeah. And you're obviously you're making mistakes then, so you know, you've got to try and tell the boys in the team, trying to eradicate their mistakes and but then you obviously do them yourself, so it's just it doesn't really work for me. Yeah. So you had a bit of a player coach. I got a list here of different ones that you've coached and you know, you've got a bloody brilliant resume. So you play a coach at Pontypool. Um was your head coach at Ebervale? Yeah. Ebervale, Wales under-19s, um, we won the Grand Slam. Um, 2009, you went back to Sale Sharks as a coach as well. How was that? Moving, you know, Again, you've gone there as a player. How was it going going back as a coach? Do you find any added pressure? Well, Kingsley um, offered me a job there, really. I, he'd been up the tax for years. He'd been up in Doncaster working, and then he worked with Sale for a couple of years. And then he had the head coach's job. So I guess as most people do, head coaches, they want to surround themselves with people they know and trust. Yeah. And he gave me the opportunity, really, to go up there and coach. And um, it was a difficult time in that. I had the, my family stayed here in Everville, and I went up there and basically lived up there through the week, came home on the weekends after the game for two years. Um, but it was a great experience, great opportunity, and I'm glad I took it. Uh, it with a lot of top-class English, international, British Lions players. And a few of the Welsh boys were there as well, which yeah. helped. And moulded you in your, in your, you know, as a coach yourself, you know, developed you as a coach. I'm guessing those sort of experiences as well. Oh, without a doubt, because the Premiership in England it is a very, very intense competition. There are no easy games. Yeah. And every single week is is a battle. You know, it's a cup final. So, the, yeah, in terms of uh, the level of competition and the intensity of it, it did develop me massively. You you've done a lot with the. The younger levels, I noticed as well. You was um, under twenties Wales coach in two thousand and twelve. Um, skills coach for the Dragons Academy. I can actually remember you getting that job. I remember it being on the on the on the Argus back page. It was a, a write up on it. Then you went to the the Scarlets in two thousand and fourteen, and that that's obviously where you built a relationship with Wayne Pivak and um, that that group of group of coaching staff, which you know you had a bit of success here from two thousand fourteen. Uh, what was that like going back to the Scarlets? You've probably seen differences as a player there, uh, Lan Ethley, as we uh, were back then, to going back as a coach as a Scarlets. What what was the main differences you saw when you went back? Yeah, well, obviously uh, they moved from the Old Surrey Park round to uh, Park of Scarlets. So that was the first thing. And uh, I remember going down for the interview and offices everywhere, corporate hospitality upstairs. Yeah. Like, this is literally a different world to what it was when I was there as a player. Um, but it was something that, uh, you know, one thing you can say about the people of West Wales, they're unbelievably passionate about their rugby. Yeah. And that, that doesn't change, you know, whether it be in the 1960s, 80s, or 90s, whatever. Um, and great people, you know, uh, really, really good people. I love my time there. And I was something I was looking forward to, and I didn't know. I just happened to put in for the, the, the job right at the very last minute. So I just finished working for the 20s and I went down to meet Simon Eastie, who was the head coach then. Yeah. And Garth Jenkins and a few other staff to give him feedback on the 20s players. Well, then Simon, I'm a chat to him after, told me that he was leaving because he had the Irish job. Um, so I last couple of coming around a couple of days later, I just started to think to myself about yeah, pushing myself, I want to move on again and try and go back into a professional game. And I just gave him a ring and said, What's the opportunity? And he said, well, they're interviewing this week, actually. And um, put me down for an interview. I had an interview. And then I went away on holiday the day after the interview. And uh, 
had a phone call about two days later saying I got a job. Yeah, great. That, yeah. that, that must have been... And, and let's just go back to that process. Ten years earlier, it would have been Kingsley picked the phone up and gone, hey, bite, do you fancy joining me as assistant coach? And that would have been the, the, the tail end of the conversation. You'd have started the next day. Now, one of the biggest teams in world rugby, now the Scarlets, which they are, is one of the bigger, more prominent uh, regional teams. You've got to go through an interview process. You know, It just shows how the game is constantly evolving and how much more professional it's becoming. Yeah, we certainly had uh, four of them in the room as well. And that was the first time I'd ever seen Wayne. I never met Wayne before. Never met Wayne, yeah. He had just, uh, he was there, he was him, Garth Jenkins, Simon used to be, and Mark Jones, who was one of the other coaches at the time. And the four of them was interviewing me. Yeah, it'd been a long time since I had an interview, really, because obviously going from a player into, into coaching, um, yeah, you didn't get that many full on interviews, but yeah, it's pretty full on. It's good at work, it's right. I quite enjoy it though. Get on, get on with Wayne straight away, because you know, which is a daft question, because obviously you're still working with him now. So I'm guessing your relationship must have been really positive from the offset. Yeah, I guess he must have liked my answers. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah, he just asked me about three questions. I think Wayne, uh, <laughs> a of, yeah, and uh, he must have been happy with what I said. Yeah, but some, you, I guess when you are interviews, you get a feeling when you come up there if it's gone well or it's not gone well. And, but, um, yeah, I was just grateful about the job and the opportunity. And then it was like, I was on holidays for two weeks and I was like, couldn't get up my head then. About, oh, I'm to go back now. And, and then I was coaching defence. where yeah. I I was coaching attack for five years before that. So, really, I'd not put much detail into defence, apart from doing a lot of analysis on the teams yeah, yeah. and whatever. So I really chucked myself in a deep end because of a defensive job. Where I'd been an attack coach in Salem with the twenties for three yeah. well, five years altogether, but um, yeah, it was something I enjoyed, and yeah, Wayne gave me a lot of freedom. Boys were great. I was learning a lot on the job the first year. I've got to be honest. No, great. Well, obviously, I had, I had a great. What was it? Four, five years there. How how did it feel for you as as a professional coach then to finally have that opportunity of being part of the Welsh setup? That, that must have been like a realisation of a dream from when you first started coaching. Do you know what, Rich, for me, is um, so different because when I was a kid, uh, growing up, from the time I started playing seven, I always wanted to, my dream was it, to play for Wales. Always. But when I started coaching in my early 30s, and then probably full-time coaching, probably just on his own mid-30s, is that I never ever thought, end of my head once, well, I want when I yeah. want to Wales, or it'll never happen because you just think this is now one job, and very few people get to do it. Yeah, yeah. Like, no way, my ever going to coach Wales. So yeah. that never really entered my head, and it just sort of obviously has evolved with the success we had with the Scarlets and timing and Wayne getting the job. Um, so yeah, it was a process, and then when Wayne, yeah, before I actually made the decision, it would probably have been twelve months. Because I, I really wanted to make sure uh, that it was 100% right for me. Yeah. I, I don't know if you remember, I seen you outside Everville Leisure Centre um, around that time before. And I remember asking you outside and you said, oh, I'm still thinking about it at the moment. Because I said to you, is there any, any truth that you'd be taking this job? I said, it's got to be the right decision. And mm. I think that's important. You know, you settled at the Scala. You've got a solid job. You're familiar with the entire setup. And... 
a lot of stress and a lot of pressure comes with that role as a, as a Welsh coach as well. Your life changes overnight. You become one of the more recognisable faces in the country. So, you know, you must have you seen much changes as well after taking the role? Oh, yeah, definitely. It's, um, yeah, and that's what sometimes you've got to be careful what you wish for, haven't you? And, yeah. But from a, you know, point of view of career-wise and pushing yourself, because like for me, it's always about no matter how old you are, you can always push yourself to be better or do something that really challenges you and, and excites you to get out of bed in the morning. Um, yeah, so from that point of view, it was like process where I ought to make sure it was right for me. And because um, sometimes you doubt yourself, don't you? You have doubts. and Human, human nature. Yeah, you have doubts and you just think, wow. I quite See, I'm like, the re- I'm private. I like my little quiet house in Edinburgh out the yeah. way. Nobody sees me. I'm down here, and I like a nice, quiet life. But obviously, all that is going to change 100%. Yeah. And I sat down with my wife and Dylan, who lives, my son who lives with us now, and, and just said, because they were like, no, oh, you need to do it. Yeah, of course you're going to do it. I said, yeah, you're just seeing all the good. And, and the, you know, but I said, you got to think about what comes with it. They said, because people will criticise and... Yeah, it. Which is fine for me, because yeah, as a player, you do, you just, you just become accustomed to it and if you can't have thick enough skin to believe in yourself and not listen to other people then you're dead in the water as a player but for your family then for them to understand last like I think things will change overnight uh, and like you look at my, my father for instance now when coaches Scarlets for five years he never once ever once questioned me about defence we'd have bad days with Scarlets and we'd lose games and uh, <laughs> he didn't mention a thing about defence He's not a phone. There's nobody, there's no one there. It was actually they walked to try and there's nobody there. What's going on? (laughs) (laughs) Everyone becomes an armchair expert, don't they, when you're in the the big role? I was actually thinking about taking my laptop over to the show and sitting down. I don't know, I just talk into it. Trying to explain to him that the game's changed so much. And the other team have actually got a guy. Who's trying to find space on the field, and there's always space in there, and how they manipulate you in trying to find that space. Yeah. If you cover this area, they'll go somewhere. He goes like, oh, it's like a game of chess, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what it's like. It is. It is it's such um, you know, in the professional era in any sport, you know, I I see it. You're on. You're in my role. I see the advances and 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 the the scientific side of it and the technical side, as you said, is breaking down. What studying opponents has been the biggest thing for me since I've established a pro team is sitting down and watching for several hours an opponent in different fights and trying to work out how to get him to drop his left hand or lift his right leg so you can do the People don't see that side of it and they don't see the work that goes on behind the scenes with it. What the, the coaching team you took over for, you know, the Gatland era, arguably one of the most successful eras in, in Welsh rugby. How did you guys feel about the pressure of, of stepping into that? That you, you know, you yourself, you was coming in as defence coach where Sean Edwards, who's a legend in, in rugby league and in the union game, was your predecessor. N- me knowing you, I think probably you're the type of guy who's going to go in with a bit between the teeth and think, I'm going to show everybody and do just as good a job. But did you feel did you feel pressure taking on that role, by? Well, like I said, I made that decision, you know, considering all these things, pressure, did I want it? Did I want the dash that goes with it? Um, yeah, so... Yeah, but for me, yeah, obviously, Sean done a great job there, and, um, and Warren, they all did. Like, even they mentioned, nobody ever mentions um, Rob Owley and Rob McBride. 
Brooke Ride, yeah, yeah, yeah. One thing you, unless you're in a coaching team or you've been in a coaching team, you you never appreciate and understand the value that everyone has in that team. Yeah. Because the head coach, when you win, they'll get all the accolades, well, pats on the back, and then when you lose, he gets all the stick. But when all lose, you're in it together, and everyone has a massive part to play. Course, because yeah. if you're an attack coach, like Stephen's area, has a massive impact on my area. Yeah. We're turning the ball over all the time. Our defence is going to be under pressure. Conversely, my area has a massive impact on his, that if I can get the ball back from turnovers, that's the best ball for him to attack off. So it's a working relationship. And every person has a, has a massive role in that. It's a cop, the team, the coaching team. Um, and, and I believe that, um, you know, Rob McBride and Rob Ali didn't get the, the credit they really deserve. But going back to Sean and my point of view, um, going back to my father again, he goes, ooh, don't any of you taking that job? <laughs> Everyone on stage after Chubby Brown used to say. <laughs> Yeah, but, uh, I got that. Look, I don't live my life by fear. I live my life by faith. Yeah, and you got faith in yourself and what you believe in. And yeah. Otherwise, you 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 never do anything in life. And, and, and my attitude was, like you said, Rich. Sean's done a great job, but like I know they're going here and look at it this way. I'm going to fear it and be and not enjoy it at all, or and I get stuck into it, give it absolutely everything I got because all I can do is control what I can do. And that is that job 100% of my time and effort. And that's what I'll do. I know I'll do that. I can guarantee that. Yeah. And then, you know, at the end of the day, sometimes what will be will be in terms of results. But yeah. I believe we'll get there and we'll be successful. And I think the fact that did um, did all you guys just in this Welsh coach set up all work together at the Scarlets? Is there any new additions? Uh, well, Stephen, the first year, me and Wayne, it was only me and Wayne at the Scarlets. Stephen came in. The following year, and then obviously Neil Jenkins has always been in a well shadow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have Sam Wall, uh, Sam Warden, who's only just come into it this year. And yeah. uh, who never worked with us at all, John Humphreys, um, who's been up in Scotland for the last few years. So now we, we've um, there's only three of us who work together, really. Three work, yeah. So have you enjoyed it so far? Has it been a, a, a good experience? Obviously, the, the, the bloody lockdown's not helped, is it? Because it's um. Put a block on everything, but in general, something you look back and think, "Yep, yeah, I made the right decision. I'm glad I took the role on." Yeah, I definitely believe I made the right decision. Brilliant. And because um, halfway through, my old man asked me that as well. Told me one day, and we had a, we lost a few games, obviously, didn't we? And he's like, "Well, are you sure you made it, Dad? Yeah, yeah. What are you going to do? Say because you lost a couple of games and things are getting a bit tough and difficult. Oh, yeah, I want to jump out of it. No, I 100% made the right decision." I learned loads, and we all learned loads from the Six Nations. So much in terms of the competition, how different it is from from a tactical point of view, more than anything compared yeah. to international rugby. The amount yeah. of goes on in uh, professional, in uh, international rugby. It's amazing that the kicking game is massive, um, and we all learned loads from it. And I can't wait to get stuck back into it, really. Yeah. So, uh, any any idea when you'll be back up and running as a, as a Welsh unit? As any talks? Well, obviously, every year we have the Autumn Internationals around November time. That's, that's um, always in put in place. So we're hopeful that they'll still go ahead. Not quite yeah. sure who we'll play yet because we're not um, with the Southern Hemisphere's teams. They might not want to come up. Yeah. Depending on how the situation is near the time with numbers in terms of uh, the virus. And I know that they're doing their best. And what's probably going to happen is we'll play the last Six Nations game against yeah, Scotland. So that will yeah. go ahead. 
Yeah. I'm not quite sure where or when yet, but that'll probably take place, I would imagine, just before the November internationals. Should be probably looking around the end of October, possibly. Nice. Okay, but well, fingers crossed that we we have a positive outcome on that. You know, for everybody, a bit of normality back. I've had a, I've had loads of emails, loads of Facebook questions for you. Too many to ask by, but what I what I do is a quick fire session. I'm just gonna have my phone up. I've took some screenshots of the ones that, that we're gonna run through. Um, let's have a look. Right. One of the questions was, what's your thoughts on the sixty cap rule? And do you see there any sign of that changing in the future? Uh, well, my thought is I like it to be lower. Yeah. Than sixty. And um, the immediate future, I don't see no any change in it, particularly because of what's happened with this pandemic. But um, I know it's something that has been talked about. Uh, we talk about it quite a bit as coaches, and it's something we would like to see. But I understand why it's in place. Yeah. Also, um, just you know, sixties a lot of caps. Um, yeah, I agree. Cutting off, you know, is despite your face in some respects as well, because it is a professional era. And I think if a young player has got an opportunity to go and play elsewhere for a, a larger sum of money, I think it's a bit unfair for them to be penalised on making that decision for them and their family. Because rugby's a short career, it could be over next year, couldn't it? You could pick up an injury that. That, that puts you out, but okay, mate, that's that one. Second one is, um, this is off Gary Turner, and he's asked, um, obviously there's been a lot of talk about he uh, head trauma recently in all sports. Do you think the rugby union is doing enough to combat the long-term effects of repetitive head impacts and concussion? You know, um, what, what's your thoughts on that, first and foremost? Yeah, I think they are now, Particularly because if you look at the new laws they brought in regarding the breakdown now, with the, we've seen in New Zealand with the New Zealand player, I think those laws are definitely aimed around as well the protection of players. Yeah. If you look, for instance, the the guy who was getting over the ball, Jacqueline, that that's most of these head injuries are coming in either around the tackle or around the clear out of a breakout uh, breakdown. Is that he used to have to get over the ball, hold onto the ball. And then survive maybe one or two players actually coming from about 15 meters to smoke him yeah. and take him out of there. That is dangerous. Now he just got to get his hands on the ball. He doesn't have to be clear. So you have to survive that clean out yeah. to get the reward um, from the jail before. So I think that's a real positive law change. Massive. You know, and people complain there's a lot of penalties at the moment, but we'll adapt and we'll get better. Yeah. Yeah? I think that's rewarding the, the tackle, the jackler for getting in position early. Yeah. So protecting him from a safety point of view and not actually getting battered with two 20 stone guys trying to, you know, hit you out of the wreck. So, I, I, on the medical um, side of things, is is excellent. It's, it's first class, you know. Boys are doing everything they can to look after. But at the end of the day, what we all have to realise is, is a contact sport. Yeah. And all you can do is manage risk. You can't take it away because otherwise you take rugby away and it's not the game we all have. I, I think that's a great a, a great way of putting it. We manage it. And also, as individuals, we're making that choice to step foot onto the field or step foot into a boxing ring. So with with that decision by the individual, the risk will fall. You know, we, we take a risk getting in a car every day. But, we, you know, we, we, that's our choice. Right, you'll you love this question, by Mickey Morris have asked, who's the best team manager you've ever played for? Uh, I have to say nugget now, any of you be <laughs> Um Stephen Cox, you know Coxie, 
Uh, he's asked, is Darren Kershaw the best gymnast you've ever seen? Oh, brilliant. Good story behind that. A couple is of years. Is it? <laughs> he always wants to do a, a, a front foot tumble over once he's had a few beers. Yeah. He, is yet to be anywhere near completed. A <laughs> um, couple on your boxing here as well. Um, Enzo Macronelli. I've had Enzo on. He's a good guy on, on the podcast recently. And he took the Twitter after I posted that I was interviewing and said that um, he he felt that you was involved in the greatest amateur boxing bout he'd ever witnessed. And um, Gary Lockett jumped in there and said it was the nineteen ninety four Welsh ABA final against Clayton Smith. Do you remember? Do you remember that day? You were knocked down a couple of times, but you come back to stop him in the third. Yeah, what, what was that experience like? Yeah, great, great fight. Uh, Enzo said that to me a couple of times actually when I met him. And uh, uh, yeah, it was, I guess, yeah, good fight to watch. Yeah. I'd only, like, I haven't even boxed in two years since I'd gone to the gym in New Bridge with Enzo. And um, he, one thing he did, like, talk about coaches as well, he always believed in me. And I yeah. doubted myself a lot, particularly coming up against a guy like Clayton, who'd boxed since he was a kid. He'd won no end of titles and whatever, unbelievably talented. But Enzo was convinced I was going to win. And I, I mean, I was nowhere near them on his level ability-wise. I just, I was fit and he's strong, you know, and I just got stuck in. And he, um, yeah, first first round, like I had a couple of counts and then I gave him a count and it was back and forth, you know, he just yeah. went out and tongs at it. And I think, you know, Clayton was a very skillful boxer, but he got involved in a brawl, in a fight. And it was a massive crowd there and that's what happens there where your mates yeah. are cheering you on. Yeah, yeah. The logic goes out the window, and you just get your head down, biting your gun shield, and, and we just went hammer and tongs it for three rounds. And you know, I managed to come on top, fortunately, in the last you, round. You've always been a strong character mentally, you know, from the years I've known you by. And um, I think that's a key element, particularly in a one to one combat sport like boxing, where I always say, give me an average athlete that's got a very, very strong mentality against a gifted athlete that's got a weak mentality because. The strength of mind will always overcome. You, you was always fit. You were strong. You were aggressive. You know, I can imagine you having a, a never say die attitude in a boxing bout. I watched you a couple of times on on local uh, local events, and you was always involved in some barn burners. To be honest, I watched you up in playing the rugby club a couple of times. Uh, I think you and Darren fought on one card. I watched up at the same on on the on the same night. Um, how, how old was you when you got into boxing? Then how did you get involved in the boxing? Uh, I was about 22. I think my first fight when I was 23. Yeah. Why uh, boxing at 22? What, what dragged you towards it? Well, I was always interested in boxing, but um, I got into a lot of nonsense, went to a bad self-destruct, pushed the self-destruct button, met a girl, got her pregnant, um, and within totally gay married to do the right thing. Then within two years, I was married, had two kids, getting a divorce as well within that two years. Uh, and then I just, like, got down about it, going out drinking all the time, scrapping all the time on the streets, fighting in Blyna every weekend, and uh, my old man getting in trouble with the police. And the old man said to me about, he said, if you want to fight that, why don't you go to a boxing club? Go to a boxing club. And I was playing for Newbridge at the time, which was bang next door to the boxing gym. The old hat in the, in the car park, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, I remember. You know, where Joe and Enzo and Gav and all the boys trained, you know, and uh, so went in one night. And I um, had a chat to Enzo, and uh, yeah, went back and had a couple of sparring sessions and got battered. And because um, you think you can fight on the street until you get in the ring, yeah, you're, yeah. 
wake up and smell the coffee. <laughs> and uh, my brother bought me once, actually, because he'd been in the <laughs> army with a bit of boxing yeah. down. But I never boxed, just scrapping outside. And, and uh, yeah, he, he'd um, give me a working over, and I'd have a few battles. But I, I loved the sport. I loved it. I loved the discipline, the fitness side of it. I loved the gym. It was a real great crack in the gym down there. And so I had a real good atmosphere with the boys. You know, really, really liked that place. It's just like a drug to me. Just kept going back. And it was sort of taking over from a rugby then, which I'd always yeah. done. And uh, he got me my first fight six months later, and then it just followed on from there, really. So when I fought Clayton, I'd only had 16. I had 16 fights. I hadn't lost. I was unbeaten. And, and uh, yeah, that was our Welsh final, which is over 18 months or so, two, two, under two years. Um, yeah, was, so was, I, was that your first Welsh vest, or did you win one at Norvis as well? No, no, I didn't. No, I went straight into the championships. I don't even know which championships were around then. I don't know if they were yeah. going. Um, you know, I I work closely with Gary Lockett. You know, he's our Jack's boxing coach, and he, he always spoke highly of you and said you could have made a career. But he is biased. He said, you know, he's got to speak well of you because you used to sort him out um, uh, tickets for the Scarlet Games on a regular basis when he was down there. He said, so I, I can't upset him. I got to I got to be positive about him. Yeah. Um, how many how many amateur fights did you finish on, by? Uh, well, I had a break then, so well, like I said, when rugby went professional, went back into rugby. When I was 31 then, um, even just before I'd finished playing the gloss, I was playing pro rugby and I came back and had a, had a fight right at the end of the season, in the May, when the season finished, against Franco Bog, a boy from Cardiff. So I got back into boxing again then. So all in up, yeah. a couple more years of that, I'd had th I have 34 in the end. Yeah. And I, I'd lost four. What, um, you know, you... Again, you've been blessed, I suppose, to have to have been part of um, a really high-level uh, area of sport in both rugby and boxing. Because obviously, the Kazagi gym is is famous now worldwide, isn't it? You know, well, and I ask this question to anybody that's trained with How good was Joe? How good was he? Yeah, uh, hard to put it into words, really. But um, what I can say with Joe is that all the rugby players and athletes and coaches. He was unbelievably by far the most dedicated, the fittest, um, the most highest self-belief I've ever seen in anyone. And yeah, everything Joe has from boxing he deserves. Yeah. I've seen firsthand like the work and the amount of dedication he put into it. It's a lifestyle, as you know, if you want to get to the top in anything, it's not just a day, it's a lifestyle. It's what you're doing, you're away from the place as well. And Joe was an unbelievable, um, mentally strong, physically strong. He had everything. Yeah. That's why he was unbeaten and did what he did. And I yeah. think, obviously, working closely with his dad had a massive impact as well. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it was like a fairy tale story, wasn't it? Training in that... The little shed, ideally, it started off as a Kazai. They got a nice gym now. I've been down. I speak. I, I've been down a few times with Joe's boys because I've had lads compete on, on on a few of their events from my gym. But um, I think what you said there, he had every attribute to be, and he was a southpaw, which was difficult. Mind it, you know. We, we we've had a few southpaws against old Jack, and trying to get southpaws into spar is difficult because they, they they they're not the norm is it you know and they're always a little bit different different way but like you said he had the physical attitude, he was fit couldn't he? he could go for days couldn't he, he never tired i never watched um i never watched him fight joe and think oh he's starting to fault there he could keep that pace going for the for, for the 12 bro 
Gary said to me when I interviewed Gary, Gary said, um, I could hold my own wherever I went in sparring, but when you sparred with Joe, Joe, it was a case of surviving the rounds and trying to do the best you could. You, you never went in, he said, with the intention of, of winning a round, even on, on times. He was he beat you that, that good mentally when you go in, you know. Just for you. He's somebody I'd love to have on the podcast, Joe, but um, you know, he is busy and I appreciate that. But I, I am on his case regular, trying to get him on, just have a chat about some of his stories. If you had your time, say, say for example, now by it was 2020, say you was a, an 18 year old Byron Ewood now, do you think you would have pursued the boxing or the rugby? Because you're going into it now where the professional is already established as for the rugby side of it. There's probably access now, you know, to, a, to an higher level of boxing because the game has moved on there. What, what would your choice be? Would it still be rugby? Who's well, thinking not, about that one? Probably thinking not. Hard about that one. I always said. That if I'd started it earlier, if I'd been like my boy Dylan, you know, and done as a teenager or whatever, and I, I would have stuck with the boxing, I think. Because, yeah. and there's pros and cons with individual and team sports, but like you only got to worry about yourself when you're boxing. Yeah. If somebody, yeah. you know, you have a bad day, you lost because it's your problem, it's your fault. It's your fault. You can't blame anybody else. You can't hike. Anyway, in, a, in a team sport, you can sometimes hide behind the other 14 if it's rugby or the other 10. In football, but as an individual in boxing or MMA, you've got yourself and nobody else. Nobody can help you out then. Yeah, yeah. I, I, um, I, and that's what I believe is that, you know, sometimes in rugby, you know, someone can let the team down or a few boys have a bad game, then you lose and you can play as good as you want or put as much effort in as you can. But, um, yeah, just from that self-satisfaction point of view, because I know, like, if I can play, when I won that Welsh Arm of the title against Clayton, and then when I played for Wales, obviously playing for Wales was massive, but that night for me was the best night of my sporting life. Yeah, I can imagine. Because yeah. it was like, basically it was me and Enzo, and you know, you're in there on your own, but it, it is you and your coach, really. It's such a personal yeah. personal um, achievement. And, and that type of fight where you've had to overcome adversity as well, you've been knocked down. Some characters stay down, I say this, they're capable of getting up, but they don't want to get up because they know they've got to do it a bit more. So... You know your, your mental strength on a sporting side of it. I think you'd have been a very successful boxer personally. If um, in the area now, particularly around our networks, you know, and and Wales in general, MMA has grown as a sport. When around when you and I were kids, you know, it was it was not even heard of back then. You know, early nineties till the UFC video started appearing on the tapes. Um, what uh, would you if it was an eighteen year old now? Because you you know I know how competitive you are and you enjoy the combat sport. Is MMA something you think as an 18-year-old you might have given it a pop if it was as prominent when you was a youngster? Oh, yeah, definitely. I definitely would have had a go at it. And who knows, you know, depending which way you want to go is... Yeah. You, you would go down that route. But I definitely would have tried it because I remember, you know, Craig Bettis used to have a gym up in... Yeah, like, yeah, he was doing jiu-jitsu up there at the time, wasn't he? Yeah. Yeah, and I used to go down his garage up there with him and then down his garage a few times. And I was really intrigued with it. Because when you... I think if you don't know anything about it, like any sport, you watch on the time, you just think two guys on the floor on a wrestle or a cut. Yeah, yeah. But when you actually go and do it and you actually see, you can watch it better with a better eye then because you can see the moves and you're trying to yeah. manipulate the opponent to get him in a choke or the, yeah. you know, no one, and give you better understanding and appreciation of it, the sport, and like going down there with Craig and oh, he tied me up with knots. Like, and, and he's just feeling it, isn't it? You can watch it all you want. When, when you experience it, it's a different, uh, it's a different ball game altogether. And you get all new respect and admiration for what them boys are doing on it because it yeah. is 
tough, tough sport because he used to say to me, do you want to me? You know, and I'd be going mad, using all my strength, and he'd be laughing and giggling at me. And the next thing I know, he's got me in a choke or he's breaking my arm or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's put no effort into it, but it's all technique. And, uh, yeah, it's fascinating. It fascinates me. Yeah. Something you would have, I think you'd have been, a, you know, if I was my age now as a 50-year-old coach and you'd come through my doors and you know, I'd have been rubbing my hands because you've got the right mindset to be a, a successful competitor in, in combat sports. So we can't turn the, bo- the clock back, unfortunately. You, um, you you came to one of the Cage Warriors events. You watched our Jack with Steve um, Rings. What do you think of the atmosphere and the, and the setup of it now? Yeah, it was great. Really impressed. It was a great night. We, we loved it. It, it, was it was it different to what you was expecting? Be honest with us. Did, was you expecting it to be a bit more spit and sawdust than compared to how professional the setup was? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Really, really impressed with the organisation of it. Um, like the viewing, the view was great. Like just like you said, I expect there was to be a lot of people stood around the octagon there, jumping up, and yeah, great. It was amazing that like you go upstairs and boys want you know you would have a drink in a bar, come down, watch it. I know, yeah, it was really impressive. And that was the first proper one I'd been to, that was. Yeah. Uh, we and, were really and, what do you think the atmosphere? Because it's quite a quite an atmosphere when a jack comes out, doesn't it, at the end of the night? Well, it's great. It's bumping, but I think as a spectator as well, I was there as a, as a fan. And it's great. It's what you want, isn't it? You go somewhere, yeah. you want to see the crowd bounce, uh, you know, bouncing there. The, the fighters feed off it. They feed off that. They put more emotion into the fight because uh, we, we can't help it as human beings. You've got people cheering yeah, for you. Yeah, yeah. Lift, isn't it? Uh, and conversely as well, if you've got people booing for you, it gives you a lift. But, uh, <laughs> it's just, yeah, a great event, great spectacle. More the better. Yeah, right. oh, when this is done, you know, done and dusted, but I'll, I'll sort out some tickets for you to pop down again. But um, I, I just want to finish off on the interview with um, a, a little bit about your personal life. Like, back, I think it was in 2013, you had a bit of a scare, cancer scare with your eyes. Can you tell us a little bit about that and uh, uh, how difficult that period of your life was? Yeah, I had a um, routine night test at Specsavers in Everville. Just get a voucher through the door, thought I'd go and check it. And they found something behind my right eye. Sent me for tests in Neville Hall, which by the time I actually got it, it was six months later. Uh, they picked something up just before Christmas. But they weren't quite sure it was because I had to go to the specialist eye hospital, which is in Liverpool. Uh, couldn't get it till January, so... I thought I didn't see like the family over Christmas, no worry, nobody, and I didn't know for sure what was there anyway. Um, so I went up there in January um, with my wife. She found a letter in the house that I did, an oncology, it said oncology on there, and um, so she kicked off with we a Barney. So I was going to tell her, I was going up there for a rugby meeting in Northfield. Yeah. yeah. But um, she found anyway, she came with me and um, went through a load of tests on the day at the hospital, all day job there. And then sat in this professor's room at the end of the day, and I was laying back. Obviously, on my eyes scanned. He was on the other side. You could see a screen behind me. My wife could because she was sat in the room, and I, and I obviously couldn't see it. And all I can you know, was blubbering, crying. And I, you know, like, well, that's something not too good. Here we go. Because yeah. you could see it on the screen, and then he just lay you have it, don't he? These people yeah. tell you straight. Look, he said you got a tumor in your right eye. These are your options. You can either, uh, if it's not malignant leave it there and hopefully it'll not give you any trouble. If it is malignant, then uh, chances are you're probably going to lose your eye. It'll spread to your liver. And, you're probably, and this is where you go, you know, the options are to have a biopsy and then have radiotherapy to kill the tumour if it is malignant. So yeah, it was no-brainer. Yeah, to stay up there that night. Went into hospital the next day and had a, a biopsy, which was probably the worst, uh, three operations. So 
was probably the worst one of the lot, really, was the biopsy. Because yeah. I had to be awake and I had to stick a needle down the back of my eye to get oh. the, the tumour. So yeah. you get for about 40 minutes trying to get the, the tumour to see if it was malignant or not. Um, and then I went home, white drove us home, and then uh, about four days later they phoned me with the results to say it was malignant. So I had to go back up the following week and stay in for a week. So amazing what these people do, incredible. Yeah. I mean, the care there. NHS staff, I know they get a lot of publicity now, and rightly so because of the, the virus, but those people are unbelievable. Yeah. And the care they give you. Um, so I stayed in there for five days. They had the saw a radioactive implant in my eye, and then for the radio, uh, radiotherapy to kill the tumour, and then they'd take in another operation and to take it off for a week. So, uh, yeah, that's that was basically it, and I was monitored then every six months or five years and I get monitored now once a year. And all clear and all positive at the moment, yeah? All good at the moment, all positive, yeah, and uh, cracking on with life. And... You, you've done a lot of charity work since. I see a lot a lot in the paper and uh, on the Wales Online where you've raised money. Was that for the hospital or for, for the charity that deals with, with this type of eye cancer, right? Yeah, well, I've done some for the hospital. I've uh, done a skydive up there. And um, I raised about three thousand pounds for the hospital, I think, and then I done something for Ockermel UK, which is the eye cancer charity. Because it's um, such a rare form of cancer, there's only like five hundred people a year in the UK get it. Yeah, they they totally reliant on donations because it's not government funded. Um, so I I did something for them, and um, yeah, and I, and I do a bit of work you know at the moment with the Auspice of the Valleys is uh, like I'm an ambassador for them, which I'm very privileged to be, and yeah really important to me you know it's a massive part of my life now and wherever i can do with the office and um, i do with um with the charity by we we run two events a year in Ebervale. so when we're back and we we always allocate a charity a, a place in in the in, in the event to do collections and then we make a donation so i'd be more than happy to help you out with that but if you want to we'll have a chat about that when it comes up i'll drop you a, a text and um we see if we can raise raise you a guy some money then around that as well <laughs> Thank you. It's much appreciated. With um, with that, you know, in in recent years as well, you, we spoke about faith earlier. You you've um, is, have you become a born again Christ? Is a born again Christian where you found your faith? Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's what you call it. But you know, I've been. Yeah, can I, I just stop? Can I just stop? Was it after the cancer scare? Did that give you like a um a thought process that brought you closer to God? Or yeah, fully time committed. Yeah. But- when I look back, I've been in and out of faith all my life. I went, like my grandparents took me to church when I was a kid. They went to Sunday school. My father actually made me go to Sunday school in Blainer, and then, but he never went himself, mind. But <laughs> my grandparents were a big influence on my life, from my, yeah. my um, like teaching me about Jesus. And uh, but and it's not cool, is it? Where you grow up and your mates and I go to Sunday school, so you go out to bed. And then I was back into it a bit when I was in the Welsh squad with Garen Jenkins and. The Tongan boys come to play for Evervale, Cody Falatau and Josh Tomalulu, you know, and, and got um, going to church quite a bit with, with them at that time, but just always felt that I uh, didn't have a discipline or wanted to, I guess, try to run away from it. And if you look, I guess, your journey through life and your path, is, mine's taken me back on it. Um, probably from, it wasn't when I was going through the treatment of my cancer, it was after it was all done and dusted. I said to the wife one night, I always went to the church um, at the local pub on a Christmas Eve. My father and all the pint. So I just said this, I'm not going up there, I'm going up to church. 
And she said, why? And I said, say thank you. And uh, she came with me. We went to the Midnight Mass there on Christmas Eve. And then I didn't go back there for five months. And just um, sat here one day on a Thursday morning, just curious, thinking, you know, nagging me, going, go on, look at the church, see when there's a service. And then at half past 10 on a Thursday morning, there was a little old lady walking in the church, so I asked her. And she just said, oh, there's one year now. Come on in. Well, being walking in the ring is not frightening. Yeah. Compared to a little so, old yeah, lady yeah. want to take me to church, and it was like, oh, no, 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 I'll, I'll come back another time. That goes back to comfort zones as well, doesn't it? <laughs> Frightened to death, going there. Yeah. But she dragged me in, and I'm glad she did, because yeah, a few people there, they're really nice people. The reverend at the time was a chaplain of every rugby team, Jeff Waggett. And uh, I just liked the feeling I had there. I liked the people that was there. And I went back and I had a cup of tea and a biscuit with them after and just got talking to Jeff and, and the people there. And they just just liked it. And I wanted to go back. I kept going back for more. Yeah. And it was like about, what do you mean, about 12 months later then, I got baptised in yeah. the church in Everville. And yeah, it's the best thing I've ever done in my life. Without by a million miles, if I had a choice again, I would have done it when I was 18. Like going back yeah. to the boxing question, I would have done it when I was 18. And I just look at it. It's, it's a personal thing for me that um, I don't complicate it. It's it's not complicated because people they say to me, you're religious. I said, no, I'm not religious. I'm Christian. There's a difference. Religion's bad. It's, it's full of, all of wars and the murders in the world. It's about religion. It's not about religion. It's about just keeping it simple for me is that, you know, I don't judge anyone. No. I made more mistakes and more sin than anyone in this world. I don't judge people. I just try to live my life the right way. If I can help someone, I will. And I find a lot of peace from it. Yeah. Mentally as well. I get over it, obviously, things like that because you always question when you have illnesses. If you led a good life that's healthy, then like, why? Why me? Why you, yeah. And you go through the poor old pity thing. You feel sorry for yourself. When everyone goes through trouble in life, is you know one thing you can guarantee in life the storms are coming for all of us you know we're all going to go through storms um but i struggled with that for a while mentally um but um yeah and it's just for me is the most important thing in my life it's a regular thing it's a weekly thing for you now you attend church and i noticed that i seen um on facebook a couple of months ago i think it was christmas time you you was a guest speaker at the the church in in Lady as well do you do a lot of that by yeah, people ask, I'll go around and do it. Yeah, no yeah. problem. Uh, yeah, I've had a few wrong wheels over, over the last few years. And um, yeah, I'm happy to go and speak about, you know, my experiences and how it's changed my life and made me a better person. And because I think, like, for me, there's no negative to it. It's, ask myself a question, am I a better person? Am I a better husband? Better father? Better relationships? with? Am I a better coach? Everything, 100%, yes. So there's no negatives to it for me, and it's a personal choice, you know. I don't ram it on people's throats, and people ask me about it, I'm more than happy to talk about it, because yeah, it does, yeah. does um, you know, talk about rugby all the time. You, you live yeah, in the yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm quite happy talking about faith. And, so but, it, it's, it's helped you as in your coaching role, you think? It's not hindered you in any way, because, you know, it can be a rough-and-tumble sport, rugby, can't it, you know? But for, for you, your faith is... Has made you a better a better coach then on the end of it because of the way you approach life, I suppose. Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. It's about gives you ba- more balance as well to my life. Is that I think you know when you're a sportsman, particularly when you're involved in 
you you become very selfish and you have to become selfish because you're just channeling your mind so much on, on one purpose. But then I used to remember when you used to lose a game of rugby and it's the same way you lose a fight. Oh, it is severe depression, like for a week until the next time you play, or until yeah. the next time you fight. And there's no balance there, there's no perspective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this is why a lot of like, the boys, who, when they retire, they suffer mentally. Because how do you replace their eyes? You can't. Sports one. You, yeah, and then you get a balance. And I think if I'd had my faith in my life when I was in my younger years as a sportsman, I'd have had more of a balance that I have now. Like, I hate losing now as a, as a rugby coach. And um, I'm as competitive as I ever was. But I got a balance because the, you do work with the hospice. So yeah, exactly. Right. The yeah. other side of life, the imp- actually the important side of life, rugby's a sport at the end of the day. You give your all to it while it's happening. And after it, there's far more important things in life going on and people hurting that you can go and help. Um, so, yeah, it's massive, massive change of mindset for me. And, and your battle with cancer would have put that in perspective at, you know, losing a rugby match as, as, as much as it hurts and it, it digs away at you, it's not the end of the world. There's people in far worse situations than a professional coach then losing a rugby match, isn't it? So that's that's a real good positive for us to, to, to wrap up on by. I can't thank you enough for taking time out of your day, but and, uh, and coming on and having a having a chat with us. Do you want to just mention again the, the charities that you work for and I'll stick it up on the on the YouTube version um, just so people have an understanding where they can make donations? Yeah, so for me, for me, my priority, you know, my you know, main charity is the Auspice of the Valleys. Auspice of the Valleys, right? Oh, but I get a I get a link up on the on the end of this interview for that as well, buddy. Cheers, Jake. Thank you right. very much. Cheers, bye. Um, hopefully, this madness ends soon. We'll have a bit of normality, and we'll see you back doing what you do best. And uh, we, we'll see you down at that Principality Stadium, buddy. Great. Cheers, Jake. Thanks very much. Cheers, bye. Take care.